Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and 7, kind of looking at it as a recap. It's as though one question and subsequent answer leads to another set of questions and answers. And in order to better understand the section that we'll be looking at this morning, which has to do with Christians and the law from uh, chapter 7 of the book of Romans... As we look at this, in order to understand this particular section that we'll look at, we need to focus first on the, um, on the key words that we've seen to date. In chapter 6, for example, in Romans chapter 6, we saw the word sin was found 17 times. And what I've done in my Bible, and you might want to consider it, I've gone through, and every time there's a key word in a passage, I'll just underline it or circle it or whatever, because it's interesting when you look at it, how, how it just stands out in that particular passage. And in Romans chapter 7, if you would circle or underline the word law, you'll find that it's found in that passage 18 times. So it's very simple to understand the theme or the message that God's trying to get across. In Romans chapter 6, he deals with the subject of sin. In Romans chapter 7, he's dealing with the whole concept or the theme of the law. And so as we look at this, along with the key words, in order to better understand as you study the Bible, you also want to look at any time there's a question that's raised, there will be a subsequent answer that will follow. For example, if you've got Romans chapter 6 turned open... You'll recall from our study of Romans 6 that the first verse indicates a question which will be answered throughout the course of that particular uh, text, and that is this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that God's grace may increase? And the argument was a very simple argument, and that was one that we find constantly in our day-to-day, and that is this. If you're trying to tell me that I don't have to do anything to get into heaven or to be pleasing to God, if you're trying to tell me that all I need to do is recognize what God says, that I am a sinner, I'm guilty before God, I've, bo- I've, I've come into the world born a sinner, stamped a sinner, I've been conceived in my mother's womb that I'm a sinner, that, that I sinned when Adam sinned, even though I didn't know anything about Adam, that I have this congenital birth defect called sin, and God says I'm guilty before Him. And you're going to tell me that all I need to do is recognize that, and then respond with faith and believe what God says, that first I'm a sinner, and then that Jesus Christ died in my place, and his death is sufficient for my sins so that I'll find forgiveness before God. If you're trying to tell me that it doesn't matter how I live my life, or there's nothing that I can do to be pleasing to God, then the obvious argument after that is this, (laughs) then I can live any way I want to live. And that was the question, what shall we say? Shall we continue to sin so that God's grace may increase? The more that we sin, the more God forgives. The more God forgives, the more we experience His grace. And isn't that a wonderful truth? But he goes on and says, what are you, stupid? He goes, you know, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? When we trusted in Jesus Christ for our forgiveness of our sin, we, in essence, died with Him. And that's what's led to us having a baptism later today at the beach. For those who have died to sin or identified themselves that they are a sinner, that they've died to sin with Christ, you go into the water, dead to sin, you come out of the water as Jesus came out of the tomb, alive to Christ. We're dead to sin, we're alive to God. That is the symbolism that takes place on the outward expression of faith, which is baptism. That means nothing to anybody who hasn't first come to faith in their heart and believed in their heart. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. 
For what's the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with his mouth he confesses resulting unto salvation. We'll see that in Romans 10 when we get to it. But that's in essence the summary of what's going on here. So the argument was, no, you can't live any way that you want because if you've died to sin and you've died to sin and and, and the influence of sin in your life, now you're alive to Christ, you're alive to God, you are now here to serve him, to live a life that's pleasing to him so you can't keep living like you used to live. All of that was answered by that one question, what shall we say? Should we continue to sin so that grace may increase no he goes on to ask another question in verse 15 the same thing what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace that is the next argument that you usually find with people who have come to faith in christ and that's this we're not under the law anymore god doesn't hold us accountable to following a list of do's and don'ts because we're learning we can't do it anyway so we can live any way that we want to live and he goes through and there's an argument there and there's a, and there's an answer there that says no no you don't understand If you're always looking for some kind of loophole to get out of what God wants us to do, you're missing the spirit or the intent of what God wants us to do with the life that he has now redeemed through Christ, that he's bought back so that we can live a life that's pleasing to him. So he's saying, no, that's not it either. So he goes through and he answers that. Now in chapter 7 of verse 13, we find another question, and we're going to deal with that as we go through it. But that is this, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And that will be the basis of, uh, of our text this morning as he answers that question. And the question is very simple, and I'm going to show it to you here as we go through it. But in Romans chapter 7, 7 through 13, you may recall the ministry of the law or the purpose of the law. He's saying basically as a Christian, well, you know what? If we're not under the law anymore, but we're under grace, what's the purpose of the law? And we learn, number one, it's to reveal sin. Verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? There we go again. Another question, is the law sin? He says, may it never be. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. His argument is a very simple one, and that's this. The purpose of God's law is to reveal sin to us. And a lot of times, we are not even aware of sin in our life because we don't know what sin is. We may think we're okay, but God says, no, I want to give you an objective standard to measure yourself against. The backdrop, uh, the backdrop by which every human being is measured by God is his word. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but his standard, his law. And what he says is, is that, you know what, no, there's none of us that are any good. We all fall short. And we need to recognize without the law, we would have no knowledge of sin. See, if God didn't reveal his law to us, none of us would know how guilty we are or that we even are guilty. Now, here's the way the argument works, and here's the way it kind of works in my mind is this. So it's God's fault that he gives us a standard to show us we can't meet the standard. You follow this? If he didn't tell me what the standard was, then I couldn't be guilty of the standard because I wouldn't know what it is. So if God was really a good God, he would have never revealed a standard because then we'd all be off the hook. Now the fallacy with that reasoning is this. That would be like someone saying, if I never got an x-ray, or I didn't get a CAT scan, or I didn't get an MRI, then I wouldn't have the problem that they found when they did the test. You follow that? That's very important. Because we live in a world today that says everything's God's fault because we can't live up to God's standard. Therefore, it must be God's fault because his standard's too high. That's like a student saying it's the teacher's fault because the tests that he gives are too hard to pass. Here's the material. 
we can't pass it. It must be the teacher's fault. It certainly isn't our fault because we're ignorant. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how many times do you hear that when you're ever dealing with your children? It's like, well, the test was too hard. Well, what material did you, did you, you know, have on the test? Well, what was this stuff? And, and, and the, the classic one, and the only one that ever worked for us was, well, we never studied that ahead of time. Really? Well, that's kind of strange that you'd be given a test for something you never studied ahead of time. How about if we call and ask if you ever reviewed that material? Well, and then it goes, blah, blah, blah. well, I don't really remember it. Maybe we did. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe you did go over it, but you just didn't get it, and so you failed or whatever you did on it, and you didn't do as well as maybe you should have, and it's the teacher's fault because somehow or another you can't take responsibility for your own actions. That, my friends, is human nature. It's got to be someone else's fault. It can't be my fault because I'm not taking responsibility for this. So the argument as we see this is without the law, there is no knowledge of sin. And let me just help you understand something. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. If you've ever got a ticket, if you've ever been convicted of something, if you've ever been charged with something, you can't say, I didn't know that it was illegal to take money from someone else's cash register. (laughs) I didn't know that. No one's ever told me that. See, because why? Because ignorance of the law is no excuse under the law. So what God is saying is this, Chuck, all of humanity is guilty, and just because they're ignorant of God's law doesn't make them any less guilty. Our responsibility as those who now know God's law is to share God's standard with people around us so that they will come to the same conclusion that God has already come to, and that is that they're guilty and they fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one. On your best day, you're still going to hell outside of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't care how good you are. And this isn't me talking. This is God's Word saying this is the truth of God's plan. And we got people say, well, that's not fair. I don't like the plan. I don't think that's right. What kind of God sent people to hell? And all that kind of stuff. And my answer is always this. The same God who sent His Son to die on the cross in your place, if you would receive Him and trust in Him, you're not going to hell. Now, just because you don't like the plan doesn't make it God's fault. So we need to recognize the ministry of the law is to reveal sin. Ignorance of the law is no excuse under the law. The second thing we learned was that the law arouses sin. It's like once we find out, it's like the Apostle Paul said, when he found out that coveting or wanting something that somebody else had was really a sin before God, he said it was only after he found out that it was a sin, and once he found out that it was a sin, the more he wanted other people's stuff. It's like as soon as we find out something's wrong or or we can't do it, that's when we want to do it the most. And why is that? Because it arouses within humanity sin nature that says, I want to rebel against God. God, if you tell me I can't do it that way, I'm going to prove to you I can do it that way. If you tell me the only way to get into heaven is recognizing I'm a sinner and responding with faith to the finished work of Christ, I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to get there by doing good works. I'm going to come up with my own plan. I'm going to come up with my own religion. I'm going to come up with my own way to heaven. And then we're going to get other people to buy into it and say, well, well, all roads lead to heaven and that's just the way that it is. And you go, really, where'd you come up with that? Well, we came up with it because we didn't like God's plan. Really? Yeah, and somehow, God, if we have enough people together and the majority rules. Really? That's interesting. 
Let me ask you something. If you had enough people at your office to come up with some, some change in, in, the, in the way that your boss wanted you to run your job, and you say, look, sir, we've got ten of us here, and you've only got one of you. Say, hey, you know what I tell you? If you work for me, well, it looks like there's only one of us still working here. <laughs> and it's none of you. I mean, when you're the one that's in charge, you can set the rules. When you're the one in authority, you can set the program. This is the way it is. Guess what God says? Hey, don't forget, I'm God. You're not. It's very simple theology. I love that. Every day of my life, I go through my life going, remember, Chuck, he's God. You're not. He's God. You're not. He says it's this way. Do it that way. Remember, he's God. You're not. It's a very simple way to live. And, 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 it, and it works. Number three, we learned that the law kills in verse 10 and 11. If you've got your Bibles, you'll notice in verse 10 and 11 that the law kills. It says, And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. What that means, in essence, is two things. Number one is that Paul learned from the law that his sin or rebellion before God was worthy of death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. Here's God's game plan. Listen to this very carefully. If you don't like God's plan, and you think you can do it another way, then God says this, here's the consequence of your rebellion against me. That according to God's laws, those who rebel against God and his authority, who think they can get to heaven any other way but through Christ, the Bible says that they will experience eternal death. They will be separated from God for all of eternity. That is the end result of that path that a person can choose to continue to travel. It's a very serious decision that a person makes when they reject the grace and the kindness of God and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf through Jesus Christ. When he says that by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves, it's a gift from God so that no one can boast. He means it. When he says, if I offer this gift to you, will you receive it or will you reject it? For those who reject it, the, the commandment or the law of God says that that person is worthy of death, even eternal death separated from God in a place called hell. There's very serious stakes involved here. We don't hear that much in our culture, do we? Because no one likes to hear they're accountable for their actions. No one likes to hear they're responsible for their decisions. No one likes to hear that, you know what, God's plan is a very narrow plan. We want to leave it open and subject to anything and anybody. And what's fascinating to me is this. I see people that their whole life, they do nothing but reject the very existence of God and the presence of God in the universe. They don't want anything to do with them. And then I go to a funeral for a person like that who has died and people naturally assume that they're going to heaven. And to me, it's ludicrous. Why would the person want to spend eternity in the presence of God when he didn't even want to believe he existed? What are we thinking? See how deceived we've become, how duped we've become into believing the lie that's permeating our culture? There is a heaven, and there is a hell. There is forgiveness, and there is rejection and rebellion and consequences for the lack of receiving Christ as Savior. And we need to recognize that, that the law kills because it tells us right there in God's law that a person who rejects Jesus Christ is worthy of death, eternal death, in a place called hell. We wouldn't know that without this. Also, see the sinfulness of sin, that God's standards are still the same, that sin is sin. It's not all the things that we call it in our culture. It's not, ooh, I made a mistake. Oop, this or that. It's not, ooh... 
you know, something less than anything God says that it is. It's not creative accounting. It's called embezzlement. You know, it's not, uh, it's not affairs. It's called adultery. It's not creative lifestyle or alternative lifestyle. It's homosexuality. It's not, well, we love each other. It's called immorality or fornication. I don't know. I mean, God calls it sin because it is. And we need to recognize that. And God's law does not water it down. So this is the way that it is. So as we look at this, you go, wow, you know what? God's law is good. It's a good thing. But if it's so good, then why doesn't it make me good? It's like if I know all these things to do, why can't I do the things that God wants me to do? I mean, it's good stuff. Everything that God tells us in the law is good. It reveals sin. You know, he warns us that it arouses sin. Get ready for it. That it kills. That we need to recognize what God is saying. That he tells us about the sinfulness of sin. And we look at all this and go, wow, you know what? Well, if it's so good, then why does it make me good? And that is the question that leads to this particular passage here in, in uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Let's take a look at that. First thing is this. The reason that it's not life-changing is because it can't change us. Look at verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage of sin. Paul concludes his argument with this, or, or the subject with this transition. I want you to know very carefully as we read through this what he says. He says, The law is spiritual. We know that God is spirit. John chapter 4, that we are to worship him in spirit and truth. You know, that's why I always, I always laugh at people that you know, want to argue about, you know, whether, you know, in all different cultures, and we've had an opportunity through our ministry and sports ministry to come into contact with people from various backgrounds and races. And, and, and it's always funny to me, you know, that we get hung up on whether God is black or white or Asian or, or Indian or whatever. And it's like, hey, God is spirit. So let's not get hung up on that. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That God, God's law is spiritual. That it deals with the inner man, not the outer man. It's dealing with the heart. It's dealing with who we are as individuals. It's dealing with our personality. It's dealing with our temperament. It's dealing with who we are outside the shell of a body. It's spiritual. It comes from God who's spirit and expresses God's will for human living. You know, in other passages we learn that the law is holy and just and good. And it should be obvious because the law comes from a holy God. That God is perfect. That he's holy. And he sets the standard. He's just in what he does and what he says. That means he's fair. God's law is fair. It's just. I want you to th stop and think about something. Even if you're a person who doesn't believe in God, where do you get inside of your own being the idea of something not being fair? Think about that for a second. I talk to people and say, well, you don't believe in God. Well, great. Well, well then, how do you, then how do you know something is fair? How do you know something is right? How do you know something is true? Where does that come from? The idea of, man, that's just not fair. What I saw take place in my office just isn't fair. What I saw on the news today, that just wasn't right. That wasn't just. Well, where's the idea of justice come from? Let me just give you a simple illustration. It comes from the idea of there being a set standard. There must be a standard first. I'll give you a simple illustration. When I was a kid, we would go to a little country store back in Pennsylvania that would have, they had a, a set of uh, scales that they had to weigh product that you would buy. Well, they still have those to some degree, like, you know, where you go, but they're not, they, they, were, they weren't digital then. But you would, you would sit there and go, you know, you would put, you want, you know, a pound of salami, and they'd cut up a pound of salami, and they'd put it on the scale. 
And then in order to understand whether there was a pound or not, they would take a weight and they would put a weight, which was a pound, supposedly, on the other side. And then it would go like that. And then you laugh because I said supposedly, but I'm going to get to that in a second. So you look at that and you go, okay, eh, it's just about one. And then they put another slice on another slice on it. And you go, ah, a little more. Another and, and then you go, oh, okay, that's a pound. You're buying a pound of meat or you're buying some produce or you're buying something. You've got a standard there to measure it, right? So now what if someone altered that weight and put it up there so that you thought that it was what you thought it was, but it really wasn't, and you found out about it, you would say, that's not what? That's not fair. That's not just. That's deceptive. That's not honest. And the reason I say that is this, because God measures every human being by the same standard. And he sets the standard, which is his law, and says, in order to get into heaven, you must be perfect. And we go... I, I know what, I'm good, but I'm not that good. You know, it's like an old joke that a coach used to say. He goes, I was born at night, but not last night, so don't be trying to pull that one on me. It was like, okay, so you know what, but it's like, I'm good, but I'm not that good. So all of a sudden, but if God says his standard is you've got to be perfect to get into heaven, then I don't know about you, but I recognize very quickly i got a major problem. Because I'll never get there if it's based on perfection. And I can try the rest of my life to be as perfect as I can, but every day I realize I fell short of what God was saying I needed to be to get into heaven. See, that's coming to recognize God's justice system. This is the standard by which he measures all of us. Now, the only thing that we can do with that standard is we either accept that standard, believe it, and then say, okay, now what do I need to do because I'm in big trouble? And God goes, exactly. But don't worry because you still can't do anything. Well, then I'm really in big trouble. Yeah, you would be toast. But I've taken care of your problem. I've sent Jesus Christ, my son, into the world to die on the cross in your place that so whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Not eternal death, eternal life. All you need to do is believe that. Will you believe that? Will you believe that? That's the question. That's the question that every human being has got to be confronted with. And that's the knowledge of the law. The law brings the knowledge of sin and God's perfect standard. God is holy. God is just. God is good. It is a good thing that God has given us his law. It's not a bad thing. The law isn't causing our problem. An MRI machine doesn't cause a tumor. A CAT scan doesn't cause it. It is there already. It just reveals what God already knows, and we don't, and we need to deal with it. We are all guilty before God, and it should have us crying out, God, what do I got to do to be right with you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's a wonderful truth. That's the good news, the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the law cannot change you. It can't change me. Then what is the problem? If the law is good, and the law is spiritual, and the law is holy, then what's the problem? And look what he says in verse 14. That's all true. God is good. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. God is everything that he claims to be. But you know what? But I am not. I'm not. That's my problem. It's not God's fault. It's my fault. It's not God's problem. It's my problem. And God wants to help me with my problem. And I either can allow him to help me or I can reject his help and try to do it on my own. And the Bible calls that the sin of pride. And it's just another indicator that we're sinful exactly as God says. I don't want your help. I don't need your help. Oh, you know what? A person that says that is so blind to the fact they need God's help more than they could ever imagine. See, God says the problem is that the law doing things can't change me. 
Just knowing what God's laws are, I'll never be able to keep those laws. When it says, God says, thou shalt not lie, and knowing that, I'll try hard not to lie, but you know what I end up finding myself? Lying. God says, hey, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. I find myself going, man, you know what? I'm trying to do that in my own flesh, and guess what I'm doing? I'm doing exactly what God says not to do. I'm, I'm a mess. And this is exactly what the passage has to deal with. He says in verse 14, he says, I'm sold into bondage to sin. That I am a slave to sin, I am trapped by sin, I can't free myself from sin, and I talk to people, and you do too, who all their life says, you know what, I gotta, I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to stop doing drugs, I'm going to stop cheating on my wife, or I'm going to stop cheating on my husband, I'm going to stop cheating on my taxes, I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to stop doing that, I'm going to give it, you know, I'm going to draw the line, it's never going to happen again, only to have it happen over and over and over and over again. Why? Because we can't stop that. We can't help ourselves. We're a mess. I'm a mess. You're a mess. I'm not all right. You're not all right. I don't care how many millions of books the guy sold. I'm okay. You're okay. You know what? I'm going to write a book. I'm a mess. You're a mess. And, and in the book, no, and in the book, you're going to open it up and there's just going to be a little mirror. I don't know how many will sell, but man, I mean, think about the idea. That's exactly God's law is a mirror that reflects and looks into our very heart and says, Chuck, you're a mess. We need to know that. The law can't change us. I like what, what I, I read not too long ago. It's been said, the old nature knows no law. The new nature needs, needs no law. The old nature knows no law. Even when we're told what's right and wrong, we still do what we want to do. And as we come to faith in Christ, the new nature living within us needs no law to tell us what to do if we're, if we're serving the Lord and following in his footsteps. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to tell me what I'm supposed to be as a Christian. It doesn't make any difference because the word of God is very clear and the spirit of God living within me will lead me in a direction that's pleasing to God. I don't have to have a list of do's and don'ts. And neither do you if you've come to faith in Christ. You know, it's exciting. See, the law can't change you and me. It has a very limited role. And the only thing that it'll do is what we already talked about. It'll reveal sin. It'll arouse sin. It'll show us that, that we're worthy of death. And it'll kill us as, from the standpoint of trying to do something. That's why Christians who try to live according to a list of do's and don'ts, the only thing we do is activate the sin nature within us. It makes it worse. And this passage is continually used in the present tense, talking about Paul's obvious conflict. Listen to me. This, is, this will free you up. This passage talks about Paul's conflict in his daily life as a Christian with trying to do what's right before God. Think about this. Some of us believe, and I know non-Christians believe this about Christians, that somehow or another when we become a Christian, when we accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, when we recognize we're a sinner, we respond in faith, we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the people around us then see us as Christians, and now what do they think? They think we'll be perfect. And guess what? It, ain't, it doesn't take long before we seriously disappoint their expectations. That's why, you know, we get the bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect what? Just forgiven. Now, don't forget, that doesn't give us a license to live any way that we want. There is an accountability and there is an expectation that God has for his people on how to live our life. It doesn't give us a license to continue to live any way we want. But what it does do is it helps people to understand around us who may have not come to faith and trust in Christ that just because you come to faith and trust in Christ doesn't mean you won't have a struggle in this lifetime with doing things that are right before God. It doesn't mean that we'll be perfect this side of eternity. 
but it does mean we're forgiven. It does mean we're a child of God. It does mean that absent from the body will be present with the Lord. It does mean everything God promises that it means that we have eternal life the moment we trust in Christ. But it doesn't mean we're automatically going to be perfect. And if the Apostle Paul struggled with his daily walk with the Lord, I take comfort knowing it's okay for you and me too. But there's an answer that he presents and he's laying it out. And that's why he says this. He goes... In verse 15, for that which I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I'm practicing, what I want to do, but I'm doing the very things I hate to do. He's saying what every Christian has said some point in our life, and that says, why am I doing stuff that I know I don't want to do, and the things that I want to do for God, I'm not doing, and I'm so messed up. (laughs) But it's true. I know what God wants me to do, and I keep doing the opposite or the things that I, I shouldn't be doing. What's wrong with me? He goes, hey, here's what's wrong with you. It's called sin nature. And we're not, it's not eradicated. And for those who would take it to an extreme, the legalists who say, hey, when a person becomes a Christian, they shouldn't sin ever again in their life. My answer to them is, where do you find that in the Word of God? Because the Bible says, when tempted, let no one say when he's tempted, he's tempted by God, because God can't tempt anyone to evil. But when, you know what, when we're enticed by our own lusts, and the question is this, it has to do with the matter of baiting somebody. When we are enticed or drop a bait, it's like a fish is attracted to bait. And it attracts to the very inner nature of the fish that says, I like worms. I don't know if a fish says that, all right? So, but, but, it, but there must be something. It, it's got to say something. I mean, because I'm thinking, I wouldn't eat it. But the fish goes, I like worms. And so as we are enticed or tempted to do that which is evil before God, there's something within our inner man, it's called sin nature, that is attracted by whatever it is that's being offered to us. Now, what you may be tempted with, I may not have any interest. What I'm tempted with, you would say, hey, well, how can somebody fall for that? I don't care about that. But the point is this, that every one of us, there's something, there's a chink in our armor, so to speak, that we are tempted by. It's our own lust, the Bible says. And when we're tempted to do that, we end up falling for it and that's what the Bible calls sin and it talks about you know what take heed where you stand lest you too fall talk about that in a second but that has to do with the fact that guess what Christians aren't perfect we are just forgiven but don't say just forgiven that is a huge statement to minimize it to say Christians aren't perfect just forgiven are you kidding me there's no such thing as being just forgiven Christians aren't perfect we are forgiven that's awesome It's a wonderful truth to know that. And that's what gets us through every day in the struggle that we're in in our life. The second thing is, you know what? The law cannot enable us to do any good. Verse 15 through 21, we just can't do any good. Look what he says. For that which I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I'm practicing, what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. He says, but if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law confessing that it's good. What, what is he agreeing with? Well, the law arouses sin within the, human, within the human spirit. All of a sudden, he goes, hey, I'm agreeing with God that what he's saying is true. That's what the law says. Guess what? That's what's happening to me. He says, so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Now, listen very carefully. If you go down through and look at this, there's 34 times I've circled or underlined the word I, me, or mine. This is Paul's personal struggle, and it's a struggle that every person here can identify with. And he's saying, man, you know what? So now he says, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. He's not saying it's not my fault. You know the old Flip Wilson thing? Ah, devil made me do it. No, 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 no. We are accountable for God, and God always holds people accountable for their decisions. But what we need to recognize, it's not I, it's not the spiritual nature within me that wants to do it. It's the fleshly nature that's already within me, that sin nature that's already there. That's what's leading me to do that which isn't right before God. It says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. 
Isn't that the truth? Nothing good in, in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Man, isn't that the truth? I want to do what's right before God, but there's something in me that is just rotten to the core. You know, and I just struggle with it every day. It's a constant battle. It's a constant struggle. Have you ever talked to someone and said, and it's almost like Paul is saying this. The first verse he says, you know what, I don't know why I do what I do. Have you ever spoke to someone, maybe one of your children, say, why'd you do that? And they say, I don't know. Have you ever had that conversation? Hey, now you laugh, right? But let me ask you something. As a Christian, as a person who's come to faith in Christ, and subsequent to that, have you ever done something or said something, and you go, somebody goes, why'd you do that? And you go, I don't know. That was stupid. I can't, you know what I just said? It was stupid. I don't even know where that came from. And I would say, that came out of left field. It's like, where that, you know, where'd that come from? That was stupid. You've been here long enough. You've heard me say stupid things a lot. And, and it's something, yeah, thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. One, one amen, one hallelujah. That's it. And that's what we get it for? Come on now. But, but it's like, and you go, wow, where'd that come from? And I walk away just like you going, where'd that come from? Man, that was really stupid. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't of God. What was that from? And it's like, hey, you know where it's from? It's called sin nature. You know what? When I stick to the text, I never get in trouble. That's only the jokes and the personal illustrations. (laughs) Seriously, isn't that it? That's where I crash and burn all the time. But I'm still going to use it because that's just who I am. I mean, and that's the way that it is. But the reality of it is, you go, man, where'd that come from? You know, I sat across from a kid who killed his dad. And and every Saturday, and you know the story, and every Saturday I sat out there and I talked to him, and I'll never forget saying, why did you do that? And have him go, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know. We see the date date line, 2020. You know, it's like, we're all trying to figure out why people do what they do. And God says, all you got to do is read my book. You know, it's like, you know, I, I laugh because it's like, oh, I saw the movie Ten Commandments. Hey, now, now read the book, you know? It's kind of like everything we do is, I read the book, I'm going to go see the movie. Well, how about if we just, you know, forget the movies and just read the book? And, and, and we sit there in these Dateline, 2020s, all these, you know, informative news specials, and they're all like, why, why did you kill your wife? I don't know. Why, why did you cheat on your spouse? I don't know. Why, why, did you, why did you steal money from your company, from your Little League team, from your, you know, your midget football league fund? Uh, I just read all this in a paper this week. I'm just thinking of stuff. Um, and I'm not that quick. Come on, give me a break. I'll start asking you some very personal things. So leave, let me go there, okay? Um, it's like, well, why'd you do that? And he go, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've had that same conversation with myself. I don't know. I'll tell you why. You want the answer? Sin dwelleth within. There's nothing good in any of us. Every one of us are capable of doing the most heinous things that we ever see anybody else accused of. And I sat across from that young man and realized with my background that by the grace of God, I could be just on the other end of that table. I could be in the same orange jumpsuit and I could have the same shackles on me. Why? Because there's nothing good dwelleth in any of us. The law can't change us. The law can't enable us to do good. All the lists that we get of all the stuff people want us to do to somehow be better, we can't get any better. 
We're as worse as we're going to be, and guess what? And we're as good as we'll ever be. There's nothing good dwelleth in us. And that's exactly what the Word of God says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me and in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish that I do, but I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin which dwells in me. And we're still accountable for what happens as a result. And that's what we need to look at, and that's what we need to realize. The bottom line is we're in a very real struggle, folks. Even as believers who are set free from sin and the condemnation of God, we are sanctified and we're justified in a moment of time, but we are sanctified over a lifetime as we continue to walk in obedience with God. The last thing he says is this, the law can't set us free. Notice that. I find then the principle that is evil in me present, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. He says, wretched man that I am. You know the word wretched has to do with being in a battle? It's the exhaustion that takes place at the end of a battle. It's a person who sits at the end of a battle on a particular day and is exhausted and they sit at their tent and they're looking for something to drink, they're looking for something to eat, but they're even too tired to lift the food to their mouth. They are so exhausted by this battle. He says, wretched man that I am. There are days that every one of us as God's people just feel worn out from the struggle of trying to do what is right before God that particular day and we're just tired. Every time someone calls on the phone, we're tempted to either lie to them or tell them the truth. I'm in the construction business. And it's like, hey, well, when are you guys going to be there? And when are you going to be done? And you're going to call the inspection? And the inspection going to be done? And we've got people moving in. And we need everything done. And what are you going to tell us? And there's a constant battle. Do I tell you what you want to hear? Or am I going to tell you the truth? And I know if I tell you the truth, then I'm going to have a whole other conversation about stuff that I don't want to have to talk about. There's a battle going on. Man, it is a battle out there. Wretched man that I am, who can set me free? And if that was the end of all of it, we'd all be in trouble. But notice what he says. Thanks be to God, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He's saying that's the battle. Where do we find freedom from the battle? Where do we find relief from the exhaustion of fighting the fight? And I'm talking specifically to every person that's listening, whether you are a believer or a non-believer, whether you are a Christian by biblical definition or you're not. And that is this, the relief that we find is the same for all of humanity. Number one, we recognize what God says is true, that we are a sinner that there's nothing that we can do to be right with God, that we are far from God, we're in rebellion against God, there's nothing in us that's good, all of us are in rebellion, none of us are righteous, no, not one, all of sin falls short of the glory of God, none righteous, on and on and on the Bible goes, there's nothing good in any one of us, we've got to recognize that first. Even as Christians, we need to recognize that. We need to get out of our vocabulary terms like, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That will never happen to me. I could never do such and such. You know, I'm better than, I can't do, I can do, I can't do, whatever it is. Just eliminate that from vocabulary because take heed where you stand lest you too shall fall. Guess what? Any person that you've ever met that have fallen into sin as a Christian, let me tell you something, that by God's grace it could be you or me in the same position. We need to recognize that truth. We need to recognize that we're all sinners. We need to recognize there's nothing good in any one of us. And then what do we do? We respond with faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. For those who have never come to faith in Christ, that is the step that must be taken to become a child of God. 
But I want you to notice something very carefully. That is also the step that we must take as a believer to continue to find forgiveness in God for every day we need to be forgiven of our sin and also to find the power that we need to live a life that's more pleasing to God. Where do we find that strength? Man, that's what chapter 8 is all about. Isn't that great? And guess what? We don't have any time to go there today, but I'm thinking maybe you'll come back. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we just, we just love you. We praise you. We just can recognize with the struggle of our, the Apostle Paul that there's nothing good in any one of us and the battle takes place every day and we're worn out, we're exhausted. But thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord we find relief. God, I just pray for those who are here that may not be assured of their relationship with you, that they would recognize what your word says, that they fall short of your standard of perfection, that they are sinners according to your laws, and that they violated the law, and the law says they're guilty of sin and also guilty of death, spiritual death and ultimately eternal death for those who never receive Christ as their Savior. Once convicted of this truth, I just pray that they would recognize and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, that Jesus Christ came to die for their sins. For the sins of the world, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that upon receiving him as Lord and Savior, you say they're a child of God to those who believe in your, in your name, that they become children of yours, that there's a new relationship. They're dead to sin and they're alive to Christ to serve God in a very real way. God, I just pray for those of us who have come to faith in Christ at some point in our history, that we'll continue to receive your forgiveness on a daily basis, knowing that we can't do it in our own strength that will respond to the finished work of Christ and realize that his death has set us free from sin, past, present, and even future. And we just thank you and praise you for what we'll learn in chapter 8, that the secret of a dynamic Christian life, of a life of obedience, is found in yielding to the Spirit of God and the power of God within our very lives for those who have come to Christ. And we look forward to what we'll learn in Christ's name. Amen.